There's a social psychologist by the name of Madeline Levine who specializes in the life of teenagers. And there's one day when she was towards the end of all of the counseling and the therapy that she was going to do when she had this one 15-year-old girl in her office. The 15-year-old girl had the courage to roll up one of the sleeves on her shirt to show her what she had done. That there in her forearm with a razor that was now underneath a bandage, she had carved out the letters of empty. Here was a young woman who had so much going for in terms of loving parents that supported her, in terms of living in a community where she had lots of opportunities, educationally and otherwise. She was bright, she was articulate, she was capable, and she was harming herself because of the emptiness that she felt inside because she was hollow. My question for us this morning is, how does God meet you in your emptiness? How does God come to you when you feel that hollowness inside? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Is that really true? That when you are spiritually bankrupt and you don't feel like you have anything, can God still bless you? And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and let me share with you that we are on a journey that we are calling Quest, and we are about to see how God will meet a woman in the midst of her emptiness. Let me share with you the roadmap of what this looks like for us. We, in the month of January, talked about the promises, the covenant of God. In the month of February, we experienced the freedom and the liberation of God. And then in the month of March, we saw how God brought his people back home. And as we get into the books of Samuel and Kings, what we find is is that God's people are moving from a series of tribes into a nation, into a kingdom. And one of the things that amazes me that I had never experienced until this year, I knew that the book of Exodus began not with Moses, the person that you would expect, but that the book of Exodus begins with two barren Hebrew midwives. One of the greatest narratives and chapters in all of world history begins with the emptiness of two women who cannot bear a child and yet defy the most powerful figure in the world. And that now as we enter into the section where there are going to be king after king after king of Israel, it doesn't begin with a king. It begins with a long-suffering wife who cannot give birth to a child. And her name is Hannah. 
1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in the first verse. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerhoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had none. One of the things that we find out when we read the Bible is that these names and these places that we think of and confuse us when we read the Bible have incredible geography and history and meaning and significance for us to understand the text. This story is taking place in a region of the Holy Land that's known as Ephraim. I'm going to show you a picture from up above to be able to see what some of this land looks like. This is the breadbasket hill country of the country of Israel. It is the most lush and beautiful area of that part of the world. In fact, the word Ephraim which becomes shorthand for God's people and the prophets, the word for Ephraim means fertile or double fruit. And so what we experience in this story is that once upon a time, there was a woman by the name of Hannah who lived in this incredibly lush and overflowing area of fertility And yet she is barren and empty on the inside. Can you relate? Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by such abundance? To see the people and the society around you filled with so many good things. And there to be something so desperately that you are missing on the inside. The command in the scripture to be fruitful and multiply is one of the first commands of the Bible. And the root word for Ephraim occurs around 350 times in the Old Testament. All of this lushness. And yet there's darkness and emptiness within. Let's continue in the story. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Why? Because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Here is the husband of the story. His name is Elkanah and what we discover about him is two things. One, we know that he is incredibly faithful, that he regularly goes to participate and to act and to sacrifice in the gift that is worship, and that he not only does that, but he invests and involves his entire family in that. That's the first thing that we learn about Elkanah. The second thing that we learn about this husband, this man, this father, is that he is incredibly loving and sensitive in a day and an age where women were treated as property. 
He bears the sensitivity that even in the midst of her barrenness, Hannah, he provides for her by giving her extra. He reaches out in generosity to her. In fact, the name Elkanah means God has purchased. Elkanah lives out of the abundance of what God has done for him and wants to share that with others. So in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that Hannah cannot produce a child for him, he overshadows her with his love. The next verse. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You need to know that men in the ancient world often did not talk to their spouses this way. There is this love that Elkanah has that overflows for God in spite of the barrenness. And he loves her. But Hannah can't feel that love. One of the things that I remember reading that absolutely jumped off the page when I read it was this. As a pastor who often comes alongside other people in difficult situations is this. Grief is when you lose something or someone that is meaningful to you, valuable to you. Depression is when you lose yourself in the process. Hannah doesn't just grieve that she cannot bear a child. She's depressed. She's in despair. And though she is surrounded by fertility and though she bears the relationship of one who loves her, she cannot receive it. And to make matters worse, her rival, this is polygamy after all, the other wife, every time they go to worship, just absolutely bullies and provokes Hannah. Here's the question I want you to think in the midst of this. Have you noticed that going to church, going to worship, brings out the best in some and the worst in others? That sometimes the religious practice, the same church service, someone leaves, and for someone they come out more self-righteous and the other more generous? I want to tell you this, if you're coming to worship and it's making you more like Penina, you're doing it wrong. It needs to make you more like Elkanah. It needs to make you more generous. That's why we're here, to experience the sacrifice and the provision of God and for us to share that with others. 
Let's keep reading. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up, and now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only will look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Notice the word if in this statement and the fact that she makes a promise that no razor will ever touch his head. This sounds really strange. Why is it that if she has a son, she thinks that God will be proud if he never shaves? if he never cuts his hair. This is known as the Nazarite vow, which was a form of offering in extreme fashion yourself to God. Don't miss this in the passage because we tend to just read this and we don't see this deeper level. What is Hannah doing in this story by saying, God, if you'll do this, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. What is Hannah doing? She is negotiating with God. She is bartering with God. She is begging God. But what we don't see when we realize what's happening here, Hannah, her name means grace. It means gift of God. Let me ask you the question. If something is a gift, can you negotiate it? No. Hannah is not living out her own identity, her own namesake. And you and I have a tendency to sing and to talk and to think about the grace of God as we heard today. And yet when we go to pray, we negotiate with God. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be persistent in your prayers. Doesn't mean you should ask. But it also means that we need to learn what grace is, which is exactly what Hannah is about to do in the next verse. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli, who's the priest, thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. You need to understand the incredible audacity and boldness of Hannah in this moment. Because people didn't pray like this then. It's why Eli mistook her for for being drunk because of her passion, because of her articulation of what she was doing and pouring herself out for God, Eli thinks that she's lost it. In addition to that, here is a woman who comes to the house of God without a husband, without any standing in society, without a sacrifice with her, and she just empties the emptiness out. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He puts it like this. Hannah seems to be the first woman, perhaps even the first ordinary person to take her place in the sanctuary and give voice to her need, sidestepping the system of sacrifice and liturgy. Ordinary Hannah, marginal Hannah, unordained Hannah comes into view at this moment as one of our premier exemplars of prayer. She boldly asserts that the efficacy of prayer proceeds neither from piety nor position but from need, I 
am a woman deeply troubled. Have you ever prayed this way? Without pretense? Without presumption? Where you get to the end of your bartering and say, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And you just out of your anguish and your sorrow say, God, here it all is. And then what happens next is incredible. Eli answers her, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, may your servant find what? There's that Hebrew word for grace again. May Hannah find hen, grace, in your eyes. And she went away, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Let me ask you the question, has Hannah received the answer to her prayer yet? No. And even before she gets an answer to her prayer, she's transformed. She's changed even before she knows what the outcome is going to be. And here's what it says next. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. My first assignment in ministry was at the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. It was my home congregation for my family. Home congregation in the sense of that my parents had met in the singles ministry of that church. My parents were married in that church. My grandparents attended that church for 50 years. And I had an opportunity to work there as an intern under a guy that some of you may have heard of by the name of Vic Pence. My immediate supervisor in my internship was another person you might have heard of if you've been around Peachtree for a while. Her name was Marnie Crumpler. My job description was half in children's ministry and half in pastoral care. These are the two like extremes of ministry shoved together in one job description. Because one minute I'd be on the floor hanging out with preschoolers and then the next minute I would be at the hospital. The hospitals that I would go to were these hospitals. This is the largest medical center in the world. A series of 10 hospitals all in close proximity to one another. Most of the hospital visits that I did were of people who were kind of in the hospital and then out of the hospital, but there was this one woman who was in the hospital for a while. She was a young adult, she was pregnant, 
and they were having a really hard time keeping this baby. And so over the course of weeks that she was in this hospital, I would visit her, I would listen to her, and I would pray for her. We prayed for her, we prayed for her family, we prayed for the life and the tenderness and the fragility of this child. You know what happens at the end of summer internships? You leave. So I met with this woman, prayed, got in my car, drove back to New Jersey, and I wish I was a better person, but it never occurred to me to ever think about that family again. Never wondered, just got back to the busyness of my life. Well, as it turns out, over the course of my senior year in graduate school, I got a job back at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston. I became a pastor there, an associate. And one of my first assignments, as soon as I got there, was to go to the all-church retreat for that summer that was located in this beautiful jewel of a section in the hill country. And about 500 of us were from that congregation gathered, and we are in the dining hall, and everybody is casual and hanging out and excited to be there. It's one of our first meals, and I'm reconnecting with people. I'm meeting people for the first time. When this woman stands before me and is holding about a nine-month-old infant. And I see her face. And I see the child. And she hands me the child. And I hold this child, tears pouring down my face. And she said with a huge smile, this This is the one that we prayed for. Samuel in Hebrew means because I asked the Lord. Because you ask, it doesn't mean that you receive. God does not answer every prayer in the way that we want or expect. But let me promise you this. As C.S. Lewis says, God has all of eternity to listen to your prayers. And so my friends, I don't know what your emptiness is. I don't know where you feel hollow and what you're hiding. I don't know what people are provoking you what self-righteousness haunts you. I don't know if you're aware that there's a love there that you're having trouble receiving. Here's what I know from Hannah. I know that the grace of God is all that we have. And I know that the grace of God is ultimately all that we need. Let's pray. 
Thank you, God, that you continue to meet us even when we are broken in spirit. That you use even our barrenness to draw us to you. Surround us once again with the fruitfulness of faithfulness and love. Help us to recognize that you have purchased the lives that we enjoy. Lord, I pray for people not only in the midst of their grief, but in their depression. I pray for anybody here who's not only lost something or someone, but they have lost themselves. Help us to leave this sanctuary today. Having worship not brought out the worst in us in self-righteousness, but like Elkanah, to become more generous. Forgive us for negotiating when we need to rely on your grace. And give us the bold audacity of a woman named Hannah to come before you without standing, without sacrifice, and to move into your grace. And we pray all of these things because we ask, not in our own strength, but in our strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said together,